Children, you probably noticed if you looked ahead, as I know some of you do, that I forgot to add the words for you to be looking for tonight, so I want to give those to you quickly, all right? Uh, Those words, of course, are prayer and pray, as well as father, ask, faith, trust, and child, and childlike, okay? So that's pray, prayer, father, ask, faith, trust, child, and childlike. And I apologize for not having those for you, okay? Well, J.I. Packer once wrote this. He said, prayer is the spiritual measure of men and women in a way that nothing else is. So that how we pray is as important a question as we can ever face. Unfortunately, if I were to ask everyone in the room tonight what they struggle with most in their lives as Christians, I believe the vast majority of us, I include myself in that, um, would say praying. I could be wrong, but I think uh, I might be more accurate than I want to be. As J.C. Ryle once said, yes, few pray. It is just one of the things assumed as a matter of course, but seldom practiced. It's a thing which is everybody's business, but in fact, hardly anybody performs. The problem is actually compounded by the fact that there probably isn't a topic or subject or discipline more misunderstood and a discipline more abused um, or used and abused by certain individuals and groups who profess to be Christians than prayer. Health and wealth and word of faith pastors speak of prayer as a means of naming and claiming or even creating any reality that we wish or desire as long as our faith is strong enough and as long as others agree with us. And they believe somehow that the atonement has somehow guaranteed deliverance from post-nasal drip and secured their right to their best life now and possessions and promotions and private planes, all of which is realized through prayer, as if Jesus is some sort of genie in a bottle. So tonight, we're going to approach this passage taking our cue from the disciple who saw Jesus praying and simply asked, being moved by the fact that Jesus was praying and and asks, Lord, teach us to pray. Our outline has three points to it, simply why pray, what to pray, and how to pray. Why pray, what to pray, and how to pray. And, of course, we need to pray 
before we begin. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Well, Father, by your Spirit, would you grant power to the preaching of your Word, and would you in these moments teach us to pray? Grant all of us the ability to appraise and apprehend the truth regarding the importance of prayer and how we are to pray. Awaken our attention and convict us and challenge us. And then refresh us, encourage us, and comfort us. As always, I am weak and needy for this task to which you've called me, and so I need your support and strength and the filling of your Spirit that I might do something for you this evening, that I might be a pure channel of your grace. So help me in my communication. May it be clear and fervent and with grace for the sake of Christ and His church, I pray. Amen and amen. So the first question is very simple, as all three are really. The question is, why pray? And I've already alluded to it, but there is no more obvious answer than what's in front of us in the text, and that is because Jesus Himself prayed and believed prayer to be important. You see in verse 1, it says, now Jesus, Luke says, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when He finished, one of the disciples said to Him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught His disciples to pray. Interestingly, Daryl Bach, a commentator, points out that this is the only place in the, gospel, uh, in the Gospels where Jesus is asked very directly to do something particularly. It's the one place where they want him to be specific. And one of those reasons is because prayer was obviously very, very important to Jesus. It was something that, that occupied a great deal of his time within his ministry. We see Luke records several places of Jesus praying in chapters 3 and 5 and 6 and 10 and 11 and 22 and twice in chapters 9 and, and 23. There are a few places also where Luke records Jesus teaching His disciples not only how to pray, like in chapter 6, 10, here in 11, and 20, and 22, but He also teaches them in regards to the attitudes they're to have when they pray in chapter 11 and twice in, chapters eight, in chapter 18. So it was something very, very important to him. It was something that Luke also thought was important to record. But it's also worth noting that the disciples apparently wanted something that they could do together and do so correctly. The disciples, or the disciple asked, teach us to pray. John had taught his disciples, we're not sure how or when and what that looked like, but now Jesus His disciples want Jesus to teach them how to pray as He has been praying. They wanted something that would unite them together as a community of faith, as followers of His, and they also wanted to do that which pleased Him, that that pleased Jesus, that pleased the Father. They wanted to do it right. So therefore, it's safe to say that this request, along with the personal pronouns that we will see throughout the prayer as Jesus teaches, it tells us that prayer was and is to be used individually, but corporately as well. It's something that we do by ourselves and alone, and it's something that we do as a body. Listen to uh, the words of our larger catechism, question 87. It says, the Lord's Prayer is not only for direction, as a pattern according to which we are to make other prayers, 
but may also be used as a prayer so that it be done with understanding and faith and reverence and other graces necessary to the right performance of the duty of prayer. In other words, the Lord's Prayer is something that we can use as a guide or a template in the forming of other prayers that we pray regularly on an individual basis, but also that we pray for ourselves and others, which is the language from question 83 of the larger catechism, but it, it should also be uh, used as written and as the Lord taught it and as a corporate body as we do and will do later in our service on a weekly basis. By praying His words and by doing that regularly, we pray with faith in and reverence for the Lord and His Word and with the assurance that we are praying properly and according to His Word. And, of course, according to His will. And when we do, we also experience a sense of corporate identity and community, not only with one another in this room, but with saints both past and present. So that being said, we need to remember, though, also that prayer, this prayer is a model. It is not a mantra. It's not a mantra. And, and one of the reasons we know that is, is because there are two versions of this prayer. We find in Matthew, Matthew uh, presents a, a large, longer version of this prayer than Luke does. And, and very, I'm not going to go into all the details. I'm simply going to say that I believe that there are two versions or records of two different occasions of Jesus teaching the prayer. Matthew records the longer version, which would have been the first time that Jesus taught the prayer in, in Galilee. And Luke records a second version when he is teaching it again, and obviously being shorter because the longer version had already been taught. So we find here in Luke more of a reminder of that uh, which Jesus had already taught. They are different in terms of length, but they are substantially the same. And that's important for us to understand. So let's look at this particular uh, this particular occasion in Luke where Jesus teaches his disciples to pray. And I want to add one caveat, 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 before uh, we jump in, and that is this. Much of the commentary that I'm going to provide, I'm just going to tell you up front, is taken from our larger catechism, uh, questions 189 to 195. And I've done so because I, I do not believe it's necessary or even possible to improve upon uh, the work of the divines, Right? Um, I'm just admitting that to you. And so I encourage you as well to spend some time this week meditating on those questions within the larger catechism as a follow-up to what uh, is said here tonight, all right? I believe it would be beneficial for all of us to do so uh, because of the content that's there. So that said, that's the caveat. Let's look at verse 2. This is where he begins. And he begins by saying, when you pray, say, Father. This tells us very important. It's very important for us from the very beginning to know that th he tells us that prayer is relational. Right? It, it's, it, it's a deep, 
uh, deeply relational discipline. As believers in the Lord Jesus who have repented of our sin and have turned to Him in faith and, and been forgiven of our sins, we have, in John's words, been given the right to be sons and daughters of God. Paul says that we have been adopted as sons and daughters of God. So prayer is a conversation between, not, not between strangers or even acquaintances. It's not a conversation between king and subject. It's not a conversation between master and servant. It is a dialogue between father, a father, and his children. And when I say dialogue, I'm not talking about a mutual speak and listen back and forth. We talked about that, or I mentioned that last week, that we're we're never told to listen in prayer. But we are to listen to God, speak through his word, and then prayer is that, that response Right? We are responding to him through our words to what we have heard him say in his word. And those words include responses of thanksgiving and praise and petitions. It, and it means that we have the right and the responsibility to draw near and approach God, in the words of the larger catechism, with confidence of his fatherly goodness. It goes on to say, we, we approach Him with reverence and with childlike dispositions. We approach Him with heavenly affections and due apprehensions of His sovereign power, majesty, and gracious condescension. Make no mistake, we approach the King, but not merely as citizens of His kingdom, which we are. We, we do approach him as, as our master, right? But, but we, we approach him not merely as servants, which we are. We are members of his household, sons and daughters. So we approach with honor and respect and yet with assurance of his tender love and mercy and goodness and therefore without fear and with great confidence as a child approaches their father. Jesus then says, hallowed be your name. And we're to turn in, in asking for him to hallow his, the language is we are asking him to hallow his name. Hallow your name. We turn our focus off of ourselves where it tends to be due to our sin, which I'll mention in a minute, but it's our tendency as fallen creatures to be turned in on ourselves, and so we turn our attention. When we say, hallowed be your name, we're turning our attention to our Creator, and we're asking Him to sanctify and honor His name or Himself in a way that He alone is able to do because He alone is worthy. Based on the language, it's not simply something that we're wishing or hoping that will happen. It's really an urgent request that He would do that which He Himself can do because we are unable to do it ourselves in the way that He deserves. It's a request for the grace that would enable us and enable others, again in the words of the catechism, to know and acknowledge and highly esteem Him, His titles, attributes, ordinances, word, works, and whatsoever He is pleased to make Himself known by and to glorify Him in thought, word, and deed. Because apart from His grace, 
we fall woefully short of honoring him in the way that we should. So really, in, in essence, we're also, in praying, hallowed be your name, we're also praying that he would sanctify us and sanctify our prayers so that we might grow in our desire and in our ability to do what we're called to do in, in regard to ascribing him honor and glory as our God and King. He then says, your kingdom come. We're to pray for the kingdom that's been inaugurated to be consummated, for it to continue and ultimately to be fully and finally, finally consummated upon Christ's res, uh, return and the establishment of the new heavens and the new earth. We're to pray that the Lord would continue His rule and His reign in our hearts and that more and more we would submit ourselves to that rule and reign and that we would be joined by others in submitting to that rule and reign. We're to pray that He would not only preserve but continue to grow His church, which is the visible manifestation of the kingdom on earth. And we're to pray that the enemies of His kingdom would be destroyed. Ultimately, we're praying for something very spiritual. We're praying for God to work by His Spirit and through the gospel and to transform hearts and minds of people. We're praying for our sanctification. We're praying for our mortification of our sin. And we're praying for our growth in godliness that is His will for us. We're praying that we would die more and more unto sin and live more and more unto righteousness. We're praying that we would be conformed more and more into the image of Christ. It's a prayer that His gospel would go forth and His will be done. And then the Lord Jesus says, give us each day our daily bread. As we pray, we're to acknowledge our complete and utter dependence upon the Father who is the giver of all good gifts. We have nothing apart from Him and what He has given to us. He's the sustainer as well as the creator of all things and is therefore responsible, not only responsible, right, for, but the only one capable of taking care of and providing for us. We're therefore to pray on, on a regular basis that He would exercise His great wisdom and His perfect discretion and give us exactly when we need, or what we need, when we need it. And we're to pray also that we would acknowledge His goodness and acknowledge and be content with what it is that He has given to us and provides for us. We're to pray to Him and thanking, uh, thanking Him for His, Himself and His good pleasure and we're praying that we would grow in our understanding of and our submission to His providential care for us. Because if we don't, the only alternative is idolatry. Turning to something or someone else. And then he says, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. We are saints Positionally, we have been established, again, as children of, of God by the blood of Christ. We've been set free from the penalty and the power of sin in our union. We've, we've been united 
to Christ and that will never change and that cannot be uh, broken. It's firmly established, and, but yet the presence of sin remains. And so we continue to fall short of the glory of God and our sin disrupts our fellowship with Him. So we pray, right? We, we want to live a lifestyle of repentance, but we also want to continually pray and confess our sins and ask the Father to forgive us our sins through the blood of the Lord Jesus. And we do this with the knowledge, with the knowledge that the forgiveness that we receive is not based upon our forgiveness of others. We are forgiven by the grace of God. The fact that we forgive others is actually a fruit of the fact that we understand that we've been forgiven by Him. We go to and confidently pray to the Lord because, and we look to Him for forgiveness because we know as our, we know that we are our Father's children who have been forgiven much. And then finally, he says, and lead us not into temptation. Due to our weakness and our susceptibility to sin and temptation, Jesus very kindly says we need to pray that the Father would spare us from our temptations, from our experiences, from those occasions that would cause us to doubt, that would cause us to fret, that would cause us to sin, that would cause us to drift away and to fall back. We're to pray that our Father would protect us from the sin and the world and from Satan because we, we cannot protect ourselves. We're to pray and ask Him to give us the strength and the persevering power of the Spirit that will enable us to resist and to stand firm against Satan and to flee the temptations that come our way. That we, might not be entangled, that we might not be entangled by the sin that so easily entangles us. Again, this isn't an exhaustive treatment, but I believe it is enough to help us understand why we pray and why we pray together the way we do each week at the conclusion of the pastoral prayer. We're praying for ourselves, but we're praying for one another. We're praying for ourselves as a body. And again, it should provide us also with a template to help us, according to question 184, to pray for all things, tending to the glory of God, the welfare of the church, and the good of ourselves and others. So why? What? And now we come to the how. And I want to say from the outset that if you're ex expecting a how-to list that includes time of day, and location, and an acronym to structure your prayer, and the recommendations on, uh, for phone apps to use, or tips on how to organize your requests, you're going to be disappointed. I'm not going to give you that kind of list. And I'm not going to because it's not here. When Jesus was asked how to pray, Jesus didn't share advice on setting in techniques. To be honest, if I were to share those tips 
or, or types of things, I would be going beyond what the Word says. And any time that, anytime that happens, there are three consequences that tend to, to come about. And, and one is that uh, I would be giving a man-made legalistic uh, standard that would become an unnecessary burden placed upon you and upon those listening. Uh, secondly, if I did that, inappropriate guilt would begin uh, to, to build and to weigh us down uh, because of our inconsistency and our inability to meet that standard on a regular basis. And then finally, we would really, it would end up being counterproductive. I would give you that list, and then if I were to say, okay, we all should pray in the morning, and we should pray for 30 minutes before everyone in your house gets up, it wouldn't take long before a couple of things happen. Uh, one is that some would begin feeling guilty and less spiritual because of their inconsistency and their inability to, to get up early and to pray for 30 minutes. Or secondly, others would begin taking pride in the fact that they do have that morning, time, or that morning quiet time for that 30 minutes, uh, and really that 30 minutes would, be, would become the maximum amount of time they would pray rather than the minimum time that they would pray, and they would begin to ignore what Paul says, and, which is that we should pray without ceasing. And I don't want that, that to happen either. There are actually only two things on Christ's list. We are to pray with shameless persistence and with childlike faith. Whether it be morning, whether it be noon, whether it be night, whether it be 15 minutes, 30 minutes, or an hour or more, two things. Let's look at the first. Shameless persistence found in verses 5 to 8. The key word is in verse 8. You heard John say it. It's uh, in uh, some of your Bibles, it's impudence. Uh, for others, it's persistence. Um, I want to kind of, as I'm explaining this, kind of share actually what this means. But the picture Jesus paints is of this individual who's at home. Uh, he has a friend that has come by, and he's on a journey, and he stops in not only for a place to stay, but he also needs something to eat. Uh, and something to eat would be right then and there, and maybe even something for the road later on. And unfortunately, this individual who is at home and his friend has come by to visit hasn't been to the grocery store. He hasn't, he, he hasn't um, gone and, and collected that which he should have had possession of, right? It was just customary at the time to always have enough in case somebody came by and to be able to meet that need should they come by. And he doesn't have it. So he's already embarrassed. So he decides to go to the neighbor next door because it's also customary for others to be prepared in case someone comes by and needs help that they can assist in that. And so he goes to the neighbor. Unfortunately, it's midnight. And when he goes, he begins to knock on the door and ask for assistance, but the, the, the so-called friend inside doesn't want to help because they're all in this one room asleep. And if he were to get up and go to the, the cupboard to get the bread, he's going to wake up everybody in his house. And so he says, I'm not going to help. I don't, I don't want to help right now. But the individual who's trying to get this bread, he's already embarrassed that, he's, right, that he has to go ask for help, but it doesn't stop him. Right? He's unashamed to go and to ask. 
And then he persistently knocks at the door. He shamelessly knocks on the door. Even if he's going to wake up the whole house, he's going to do whatever it takes. He's, he is somewhat embarrassed, but he's not embarrassed enough to not go and ask his friend. He's not embarrassed to make the commotion, so he shamelessly and persistently knocks on the door. Now, Jesus is not only contrasting the individual who doesn't want to help him for fear of waking up his family and God, right? There is a very big contrast there. But he's also comparing the shameless persistence of the one who needed the bread and his, and his seeking out of his friend and going to his neighbor for help and the shameless persistence in our shameless persistence in taking our needs to the Father. We're not supposed to be worried or embarrassed. We're not not to feel as though our needs are inconsequential. We're not to feel as though that the Father is too busy. Again, this is a contrast between that friend and God. God, nothing is... nothing is inconvenienced... there is nothing that inconveniences the Father. Our needs don't put him in that position. We're to come to him un, unabashedly and lay our needs before him. We're to ask and seek and knock because he's waiting as a father waits for his child. And in verse 9, he adds to this, he says, and I tell you, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you, for everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks it will be open. And again, this is one of those verses along with uh, the verse in James where James says, you have because you do not ask, and again, these are a couple of those verses that are misused by many. And, and to respond, we simply need to say, context, context, context. And what is the context of of this verse that we are to ask and seek and knock and we're going to receive and and, and the door is going to be uh, opened and the context of verse 9 is verses 2 to 4, right? It's verses 2 to 4. Verse 9 doesn't mean that we have this blank check and that anything that we ask of Jesus, He's going to give to us, verse Verse 9 says that when we ask for the things in verses 2 to 4, right, when we pray, when we pray as Jesus taught us to pray, He's going to hear us because we're praying according to His will. It's true that we do not have because we do not ask, but we have not only because we ask, but more importantly, because we ask for that which the Father wishes and wills to give us. That's why it's important that both the Spirit and the Lord Jesus intercede on our behalf as we pray. The Spirit enables us, in the words of question 182, to understand both for whom and what and how prayer is to be made, and by working, working and quickening in our hearts those apprehensions, affections, and graces which are requisite for the do- right performance of that duty. The Spirit enables us in that. And Christ stands before the Father as our mediator, 
at the throne of grace, presenting us and our requests to the Father, because without Him, we would not have access, and our prayers would not be heard. But we're not only to pray with this shameless persistence, we're also to pray with childlike faith. In verses 11 to 13, Jesus says, listen, you need to pray And to ask for these things because you can have faith in your heavenly Father. You can trust Him. Even you, He says, even you, even in your flesh and in your sin, you're not going to play games with your children. You're not going to play dirty tricks on them. And when they ask you for good things, you're going to turn around and be cruel and give something that's going to harm them. So if you're not going to do that, even in your sin and in your flesh, you have to know that your heavenly Father, who is perfectly good and kind and gracious and merciful and loving, isn't going to do that either. He would never do that. As a matter of fact, He's going to give you far beyond what you can ever imagine. He is actually going to give you and will give you the greatest gift of all in the Holy Spirit. He's going to give you Himself. Children, let me ask you, if you you asked for a pet... Say you wanted a puppy. Would your dad give you a dangerous animal of any kind? Or if you came to him and asked for a toy, would you expect him to give you a set of razor blades? No, of course not. So Jesus says when we pray, And it feels as though our prayers are not being heard and our prayers are going unanswered or as if God is withholding that which we believe to be good and right. We need to remember that He is our Father. And we need to remember that He's only going to give us what is ultimately for our eternal good. John Calvin once wrote, God does not answer our prayers as we pray them, but as we would pray them if we were wiser. Let me say that again. God does not answer our prayers as we pray them, but as we would pray them if we were wiser. He will always give us what's in our best interest. He has our best interests at heart. We must have that childlike faith to trust Him, that that our Father is more interested in, in our sanctification and in our holiness and in our eternal joy than He is with our temporal happiness and will give us what is ultimately best for us. He will not pull a bait and switch. He will not give us that which would harm us. So prayer is not simply important, it's necessary. 
The question is, in what way is it important and necessary? And again, the larger catechism, uh, question 178, and the Heidelberg Catechism, question 116, uh, help us. Because through them we come to understand that Scripture says very clearly that prayer is the first and foremost, is a, a means by which we respond to the goodness and the mercy of God. He's been good and merciful. We respond in prayer. It's our means of expressing our thanksgiving to Him for all that He has done and all that is ours in Christ. The catechisms also say that the prayer is the primary means, in Paul's words, of making our request be made known or making our request known to God. And the larger catechism's language says that we're offering up our desires unto God. So it's through prayer that we're communicating with the Lord. And we call upon His name and we thank Him for all that He is and for, uh, for giving us that which we need. And so we come back to that question, why do we struggle? Why do we struggle? And I think there are three, three things that we need to consider, three primary reasons that we need to consider. And the first is this. We as Reformed folk have the tendency because of our belief in the sovereignty of God, to go to the extreme and believe that God's going to do what God's going to do whether we pray or not. His will is His will. It'll be done, period. Prayer or no prayer. But brothers and sisters, we need to remember that God has not only ordained the ends, He's ordained the means. And He is ordained to work with and through secondary causes, and that includes the prayers of His people. Just as, just as He sought Adam's help in the garden naming the animals, just as He sought Adam and Eve's help in, in tending to the garden, He has chosen to include us in the working out of His plan through the prayers of His people. He has called us to pray because He works through those prayers. Secondly, we struggle, probably most obviously, with prayer because of our own sin. Because as I mentioned earlier, our sin turns us in on ourselves, right? And it affects, well, it changes our focus. It clouds our judgment. It taints our motives. It redirects our affections. And so if prayer is, is a response from our heart, we're in dire need of help. We can't do it on our own, and we try and we try and we try to no avail. So we must always remember, because prayer is a response from the heart, we must ask, ask the Spirit to intercede for us. Ask the Lord Jesus as our great high priest, and as our mediator to present our prayers before the Father. We need to repent of our sin. Own it. Have that forgiveness. And then approach Him. And then finally, we struggle, I believe, with our prayer because we are so prone to forget the gospel. We forget the gospel we forget what Christ has done for us. And when we forget what He's done for us and who we are in Him and how we've been united to Him, we naturally are going to shrink back. 
We're going to step away from Him because we're not going to approach Him in prayer forgetting the gospel because we're going to be in fear of condemnation. But the truth is, we're too needy not to approach Him. Yes, we, we have our sin to deal with, but we, we must remember we're in Christ and we're too needy not to approach Him, and it's our neediness and our acknowledgement of that neediness. We need, we need to embrace our neediness. The more we embrace that neediness, the more we'll run to Him. He desires us to run to Him as a child runs to the Father. Listen to the words of Scott Clark. He says, believers go to the Father only on the basis of what Christ has done. We pray as redeemed sinners. We do not pray as those who have met the terms of the law, but as needy sinners received by grace. The needy cry out freely to God because they know their need. Those who approach God on another basis will struggle. Those who seek to hide their sins and need from God will struggle. One great struggle of prayer is the struggle to be honest before God about who and what we are in ourselves. Brothers and sisters, may we meet these struggles May we meet our struggle to pray head on by resting in the person and work of Christ. It's in Him that we've been predestined as sons and daughters, predestined to adoption. We're sons and daughters. We're His brothers and sisters. And may we approach in Him shamelessly, with shameless persistence and with childlike faith. Trusting always that our Father hears us when we pray and will do that which is for His glory and for our good and for others who have been called according to His purpose. May His will be done. Let's pray together.